bottom, it's time to thank some people who are on our side because we're on their side. You found a new tool, software, Blue Rhythm commissioning software. Robert, I sure have. I think Blue Rhythm is what I've been looking for all these years. Building commissioning can be chaos at the best of times. Most projects I consult on really suffer from poor information management. You know, it's 2019, yet the property and construction industry seems to be firmly stuck in the 20th century paperwork world. I think people mistake emails and PDFs and Microsoft files on their servers and all the different PCs as a digital solution. In reality, it's just unorganized chaos. Do you want to streamline your commissioning process and save time and money? Do you want to go paperless and increase efficiency? Blue Rhythm is a cloud-based software solution built specifically for building commissioning professionals. Blue Rhythm digitizes your custom forms and checklists, allows collaboration across project teams, and automates reporting, leaving you to focus on what matters. Their team help you onboard the test sheets you've developed over the years. You can even send it some in paper, and they will digitize that and put it in the Blue Rhythm system for you. In my opinion, Blue Rhythm pays for itself in time saved on paperwork on a single project. For a demo or to start a free trial, go to bluerhythm.com. That's where rhythm is spelled R-I-T-H-M like algorithm. Bluerhythm.com. Tell them the edifice complex sent you there. In a world where high-performance zero-defect buildings are hard to find, Two men are on a mission to disrupt the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work, perspective on the adjacent possible, and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator, here with my colleague, official agitator, friend, and Yoda of most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, Sir Yoda. Hello, Sir Yoda. How are you guys? (laughs) Doing great. Hey, listen, today's guest earns our Curiosity Award. He is a licensed professional engineer who earned a PhD in anthropology from the University of New Mexico. He's also lead in well-building accredited professional and currently heads the research and development team at Branch Pattern, a building consultancy firm dedicated to improving life through better built environments. Welcome to the show, Marcel Harmon. Hi, guys. Good to have you on. Listen, Marcel, you are applying evolutionary theory in anthropology for understanding past and contemporary societies, and the reciprocal relationships between people and the built environments. That makes you a very unique researcher and practitioner within the world of property development. And Adam and I love the non-traditional outliers that are known for changing the status quo. Your story intrigues us, so tell us about it. So yeah, how did I end up in this position? Yeah, I, I guess I am a little bit of an outlier. So For me, I've always had kind of an interest in lots of different things. So, you know, sciences and history and archaeology. And and so when I went to undergraduate school at Kansas State University, I was trying to make a choice. What am I going to do? And finally decided, well, why do I have to choose one thing? Let's let's look at multiple things here. So um, (laughs) instead of just an engineering degree, I got a, a degree in architectural engineering from Kansas State University. I also got an undergraduate degree in anthropology with a focus on archaeology. And 
At the time, I really wasn't quite sure how I was going to marry them, but I had kind of some rough ideas. I'd read some articles where engineers had worked with archaeologists to help them understand how people built environments in the past. I thought, you know, that might sound kind of cool as an 18-year-old that, you know, maybe that's the direction that I'll go in. So I got my undergraduate degrees. I decided to work as an engineer for a while just to kind of see if that's where I wanted to to just stay. I did mechanical, electrical, and uh, plumbing design for several years, kind of focused on lighting. That was what I had the the most interest in from a design standpoint. Um, Though HVAC was kind of cool too, just because, you know, those are where a lot of the occupant uh, interactions with the occupants are. But then I decided, you know, I still think I want to do more than this. So we moved out to Albuquerque, New Mexico to establish residence, uh, applied to graduate school there, got accepted. And I thought, you know, I'm going to take what I've learned as an engineer and help interpret the, the past that way. And um, that's, that's kind of how I kind of started along that route. And along the way, I got introduced to evolutionary theory to help understand human behavior from my, um, my dissertation chair, my mentor there at the university, introduced me to the, this form of evolutionary theory that archaeologists use to help them interpret the, art, the material record, right? To understand why people build, did things in the past the way they did, and including building their built environments. And so I, I got hooked on that, made my way through by the time I got towards the end of my degree. And while I was in grad school, I was still working as an engineer because that's nice to not have to, to build all that debt as I was going through grad school to help pay the bills. <laughs> Adam, so, you understand that, eh? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Actually, so I just want to pause it there. There's a couple of mm-hmm. interesting points for me, sure, right? So for sure, a degree in anthropology on top of an engineering degree, I think you're the first person I've met in 37 years who's gone that route. So kudos there. <laughs> yeah, totally. So the other thing to say here to anyone who is finishing their bachelor's and being fed the line that they need. So you're, if you're doing a bachelor's in mechanical engineering, for example, this could be civil, electrical, you do not need a master's in that engineering subject at all. Anyone who's telling you that is selling you a line of stuff to get you to spend more money at university. <laughs> To be an engineer, a licensed engineer, you need a four-year bachelor's degree. I have a dip master's degree, so who am I to talk? But my degree is in project management, right? So my old professor would say, if you're doing a master's in mechanical on top of a bachelor's in mechanical, that is a total misallocation of resources for your ROI. Do not do it. So anyway, it's <laughs> just one of my things, yeah? Well, and the- that all the – so you are the agitator, Adam. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm not going to call you on that one because maybe Marcel too. But, you know, when you think about some of the outliers that we've had on the show before, yep. a lot of PhDs. Correct. Which they wouldn't have been able to get had they not got their master's degrees. So Okay, I've got a good I, answer for that. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> so I agree with you in the sense that if you want to be a practitioner, yeah. you know, in the engineering field, yeah, that the master's degrees and the PhD degrees are not gonna serve you at that if that's what you want to do. Agreed. Right? So yeah. a PhD, the per in my and this is all my worldview, and bear in mind I am a bona fide crazy person. Though my worldview is this, if you want a PhD, you should pursue that if you want to go into academia or high-level R&D. Otherwise, there is no reason for it whatsoever, in my opinion. And yeah, we've had some great PhDs on, right? Yeah. yeah. They are like nerds cubed, not squared, I don't know. But, and they're brainy, there's no question about that. But I can tell you, I've employed some PhDs and they were horrific in the workplace. They are great in, in academia and teaching and pushing that envelope out on the R&D, for sure. You need that. But 
So when I finished my master's, I got pitched by my uh, dissertation supervisor. Well, you should, do a, you should do a PhD. It's only 10 papers now together, quote, unquote. Yeah. <laughs> and I pulled my leg out of that bear trap as fast as I possibly could and ran to the highest paying employer I could have. Anyway, let's get off my, my personal ticks and get so, back so to you, Marcel. Yeah, so now, now Marcel, <laughs> could, with his evolutionary theory, might have something to say about your path. <laughs> <laughs> well, what is yeah. it? <laughs> go ahead marcel yeah, i mean I, you know I, I had a degree in a general sense if that if you, all you want to be is a practitioner if that's yeah. you, you know you don't necessarily have to go the higher route i you know it kind of depends i think on what areas of engineering maybe you want to do there there might be some areas where a master's could be beneficial i mean even in architectural engineering some of the programs have masters that i think that are still very, they're masters, but they're very focused on the practicing part of it still, yep. per se. It's no. not, it's not a research or academic necessarily focused. Those programs are still really geared to getting you out into the industry. So, you know, it just depends. But yeah, I mean, when you get a PhD, you know a whole lot about a really, really tiny, tiny bit of the world, right? right? Exactly. That's what, yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. And, and you realize at that point how much you don't know, right? Even yeah. more so than you did before. It's like, yeah. 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 We talked about that. Was it yesterday, Adam? I think or a couple of days ago on another interview, the prior, prior to the interview, we were talking about, you know, we're, we're old guys. We've got gray hair, no hair, and we know shit. I mean, we don't know <laughs> stuff, you know? And as much as, and the, and it's this, and it's a cliche, right? The more you know, the more you don't know, um, yeah. which sure. makes learning a lifelong objective and, and which makes it fun for those that like to learn, you yeah. know? The only yeah. thing I'm confident in is that I know nothing, actually. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Marcel, continue on, because this, yeah. the, the, these areas of study, the engineering, the anthropology, the evolutionary theories, I mean, you've taken that into a direction that, like Adam said, I mean, we, we never had anybody on the show before that has that direction. So keep telling us about that. Yeah, so um, as I was wrapping up grad school, I was, you know, kind of deciding maybe I'd, the academic route wasn't where I was going to end up being. I, I liked archaeology a lot, but I also at that point, because I still was working as an engineer, I began seeing some areas where the AEC industry could benefit from more direct incorporation of, you know, sociology, anthropology, interpreting certain things from an evolutionary theory. And, and maybe at that point, my chair was actually also thinking about leaving academia at the time. And we decided to to form our own consulting business. And we ended up focusing in the AEC industry at first. And we we talked less about evolutionary theory. That was kind of in the background. We were making some interpretations using that. But a lot of it was applying what most people think of as cultural anthropology tools like ethnography, doing interviews and observations and surveys and getting an understanding of how the building occupants are using their spaces, what their needs actually are, what the other key, key stakeholder needs are, how they vary, and then trying to help to help marry those into a concise vision for a project. If it's the beginning of a project, if we're evaluating at the end of the project, you know, making sure that we're looking at it comprehensively. And so not just looking at it from an engineering perspective or an architect's perspective, but also from the occupant's perspective and the owner's and the operator's perspective and trying to get all those together and see from and help us understand, you know, how the building is working for them, where it's not working, what we can do to improve it, and then and then take that forward to the next project. And so that's kind of what we started doing as consultants. We ended up in separate states, and we after a while we eventually decided to kind of 
dissolved that partnership and he went a different direction. And I found an engineering firm branch pattern that was actually interested in the same thing, not just looking at the, from the typical MEP design philosophy, but looking recognizing that it really takes a cross-disciplinary effort to come up with a solution that really meets everybody's needs, is energy efficient, you know, minimizes impacts on the environment. It takes more than, than the typical you know, MEP engineer, at least that perspective. And so I joined them with the idea that I would help kind of develop that a little bit more. Initially, it started, I, I still did some engineering for them at first when I first started, just to, as I was building up, kind of started adding POEs to the mix of services that we provided. I did that bringing in the ethnographic aspects of it. And eventually we added some research and development, actually doing some of our own research projects. I've got another person on staff now that helped me out and we work together. He's got a master's and he's an architect and has a master's in architectural engineering with a focus and his focus was IEQ. So he has a lot of knowledge on on, um, IEQ impacts on productivity and health and how to measure that. And we work together either. So we do research projects, we do work for clients when they want to help them assess their existing spaces. We come in at the beginning of a project to do pre-occupancy studies to help with master planning efforts. And we've right now, as a company, we've recognized the importance of more of a human-centered design approach in general. And we've developed our own process internally and are in the process of kind of rolling that out and developing the tools and procedures that we use as a company as a whole. And we've actually just, we're getting ready to kick off a project tomorrow. We've hired a consultant to help us develop some of those tools and processes for, for our human centered design approach to help get that process kickstarted a little faster and get it done quicker. But um, that's, that's cool. Just, just to unpack that a bit then going back, you mentioned S sorry, ethno, I've wrote it down. I can't ethnographic. Remember. Ethnographic. Yeah. Can ethnography. you break that down? Yeah. Ethnography. That's the word. Yeah. I'm learning so many big words lately as people were interviewing. <laughs> so could you just sort of pack, unpack that and break that down? Yeah. So into an easy to understand a couple of sentences for the listeners. Sure. So, I mean, basically ethnography is just, it's an anthropological term, but a methodology basically of understanding a group of people in their own context and how they interact with each other. What are the power differentials? How do they interact with, how does that impact their interactions with each other, with their environment? It's just, it's understanding a group of people in a specific context. And there are, you know, and that's typically done through observations and interviews, but going out there with them, not taking them outside of their own context, do those interviews. Like, I don't want to take them, like, if I go out, I don't want to take them to a conference room, a bunch of people, like, do a focus group type thing. That has uh, uses, but I want to to go out and spend time with them in their spaces Mm. and interact with them while they're doing their day-to-day work. And so that gives me a good idea of we call that, you know, there's there's ultimate needs that everybody that most people have in certain situations like IEQ, needs for control, you know, having a workspace that enables you to get things done that you need. But then there's the how those translate will depend on the specific group in question, the specific tasks that they have to do, their own social cultural backgrounds, their intellectual traditions that from an education standpoint that they come from, all those influence what the specific proximate solutions to meeting those ultimate needs are. And so being out in the space helps me get an understanding of how their existing space is helping them or hurting them in terms of meeting those needs. So yeah, I'd, I'd summarize that as sort of like you're taking into account culture, yeah, immediate right. and local, right? On top yeah. of everything else. Yeah. Sorry about that. I, yeah, no, I want to, that's a great, uh, great uh, segue into the statement. And that is, is that if you take a look at what, you know, Marcel and their company is doing, 
and you compare that to the traditional HVAC design, you get to see the disconnect, <laughs> right? Because here's what happens. Everybody knows this, right? The client hires an architect. The architect develops the, you know, the set of cartoons, and then he sends the cartoons out to all of the engineers, and the engineers don't discuss with each other the sort of the, the multidisciplinary stuff that needs to get discussed, and everybody's designing the code. Nobody asks the client what it is that you actually want from this project. No one sits down with them, has a heart to heart. So Marcel, you, you know, you're exposing the, the weaknesses of a traditional design protocol, which is great. You know, I want to, I want to sort of touch on this with another story. One of our past guests, uh, Dr. Bjarne Olson, who was the ASHRAE president last year, he and Dr. Kim from uh, Seoul, Korea and I wrote an article for the ASHRAE Journal. This is going back a few years ago. We actually ended up winning an award from it. And it was on the history of radiant heating and cooling. And one of the early studies that we looked at was a project up in the Aleutian Islands in Alaska, you know, carbon dated, I think it was something like 3,000 years ago. And we and the archaeologist up there, of course, why he was hired, Dr. Ketch was his name, was that the Department of Highways was building a, a road system right through this archaeological site. Yeah. But this archaeological site had so much information that today we can understand and use in our own design practices. Anyways, that led us to then understanding sort of how that evolved, you know, building structure and how do people stay comfortable in Alaska in February, you know, with basically just rocks and twigs, driftwood to build buildings, right? And and how did they survive? And then follow up to that, and then I'll shut up here, is that I just came back uh, from Italy. And my I was over there for a whole bunch of reasons, but one of them was to understand the Roman architecture and the evolution between what happened 3,000 years ago and 1,000 years ago and 500, you know, and 500 BC. And it's amazing how we evolved up until, you know, say a thousand or 500 years AD. And then all of a sudden, I don't know what happened to people's brains, but they started to build these big castles with one fireplace or two fireplaces. And they were the most uncomfortable buildings in existence. Why is it that, you know, 3000 years ago, people knew how to stay comfortable. You evolve it into the Greeks and then the Romans and then after that, it's like everybody had a brain fart. <laughs> what happened, Marcel? Well, not not everybody, right? Certain parts of the world maybe had more of a brain fart than other parts. Um, <laughs> yeah. 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 So, you know, so I'm, I'm trying to think how to unpack this. From, and this is a great segue into the evolutionary component, right? How evolution yeah. impacts the decisions that we make and the paths that we choose, right? To get to certain points along the way and how at some, it seems that it can, it can, because well, let's just start. So humans are subject to the forces of evolution, just like every, any other creature on this planet, right? We are, we're part of nature. We're part of life. We're living creatures. We have culture. Other creatures also have some aspects of culture. Ours is more developed than others. But culture, our behaviors are part of what's called a phenotype, right? The, the, the physical expression yeah. of our genotypes, right? That's, and so natural evolutionary forces like natural selection, they operate on the phenotype of any organism. And so if the phenotype works well for survival and reproduction, then the natural selection is going to say, yeah, you keep going. If it's not, you know, things that don't work as well, they get selected against, right, over time. And so the built environment is part of our phenotype. It also gets selected on, but natural selection doesn't just operate on the individual or the gene. It also, and not everybody agrees 
there are some biologists and evolutionary theorists that don't necessarily think that group selection is as big a thing, but a lot of us do. And that evolution also operates at the level of the, of the group, right? And so things that are beneficial for certain group levels may not be beneficial at, at the individual level, but because maybe the levels of selection are stronger at the group level, they'll override the benefits at the individual level. So in the case of the castles, let's say take the castles for England. There are other reasons relative to the the social structures at the time, feudalism and whatnot, and relative to and as well as to what knowledge was available at it, at a specific point in time relative to construction that would have led to even though it's not as thermally comfortable, you know, or comfortable in other ways in terms of defense and you know some of those types of benefits and factors that weighed into it would have that are beneficial for the feudal lord and his group would have potentially overridden those other characteristics. Mm. Um, we can jump forward and let's just take air conditioning in in the U.S. Right, that's the dominant form. But I mean, you guys and I know, and a lot of other people know that it's not the most effective way to maintain thermal comfort. Right. But really, really, it's the dominant. The reason it's the dominant form in the U.S. is really a historical accident, combined with some selective advantages that it offered to certain groups at, at during the late nineteenth and early twentieth centuries. You know, it, it at the time it took off really because uh, in manufacturing there were needs to cool equipment as opposed, you know, at the time in textiles and other manufacturing uh, at the time had all this new spaces. Right, you had to had to cool it off and dissipate the heat, and so that was air conditioning was an effective way to do that. Um, Carrier and others at the time developed it for specifically for that reason, and they also needed humidity control at the time for especially like for textiles, and so it was a good means for that. And it was easy to marry with the existing ventilation and heating systems that were already in place at the time, so it was much easier to put them all into the same distribution system, and so. It was advantageous in one aspect in terms of to those businesses that were producing HVAC those systems at the time. It was advantageous to the manufacturers. It was advantageous just because it also provided a measure of uniformity in terms of construction methods at the time. And then relative to no cooling at all, it did provide some measure of you know cooling for people and thermal comfort. And people recognized that and started adapting it for that purpose and because it was it was readily available already there. Yeah, that's a really superficial, high-level examination of it, but it's the, the benefits that it provided to those groups at the time and the larger society at the time overrode the thermal comfort disadvantages that it may have had. So that's interesting because my brain yeah. is firing synapses here all over the place. <laughs> You're saying that. So <laughs> one of my theories is that, well, one, I think we're in a change, a period of change in evolution now, but pin that, I want to come back to that. But one of my theories, particularly in North America, is you are limited to what you can do. It's driven by the supply chain, not by the architectural wishes and wants, right? <clears throat> you know, AC air systems are dominant, as you've just said, historically, and they are still dominant because the supply chain is geared up to produce them at low cost, right? Right. Now, we're in a, I perceive we are in a period of evolution in terms of there's a movement, passive house, sustainability, green building, whatever label you want to put on it. There is a movement to try and move things forward again, right? So we've gone from Roman you know, radiant floors to feudal fireplaces to AC being dominant, and I think there is now a movement to try and move that again forward. Now, as you say, the dominant powerful groups tend to get what they want, right? 
So I have this thing in my mind where, you know, sometimes I look at a passive house and by the way, I want one. So when I'm, I might be shitting on them a bit, <laughs> I want one, right? But, you know, for me, a Tesla and a passive house is, sig- is virtue signaling, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm saying that because I don't have them yet. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry, I acknowledge my own faults readily. But when there's a critical mass of that, say, right? So when you can walk down the road and see, you know, several passive houses and several Teslas driving by, at some point there's an evolutionary change, right? It become it starts to tip the balance. But what I suppose the, the question I'm getting to here is and I want to struggle with. What drives? Is it the elite group getting what they want, or is it industry and the supply chain letting them have what they want well that's a good question i'd say i'm you know in our particular case i'm not sure i know for sure which is the chicken or the egg but um, i would you know in some ways it doesn't i don't know that it it, it, you know it's an interesting question i don't know what matters in terms of moving forward but does it matter in terms of impediment to moving forward right because one of one of them two groups is dominant or the dominance changes maybe over time. Because at the moment, industry is, I would argue, industry is dominant and supply chain is dominant because there's so much inertia and change in that, right? Maybe it's not a maybe it's not a black and white answer, Adam. Maybe it's maybe it's a timeline, a continuum, you know, that it starts out in the beginning that the manufacturers drive it because it's the status quo, it's their game. But then you have yeah. the outliers that start, you know, making alternative or alternate alternate choices available to people, people start to gravitate towards that, and then there becomes a shift. You know, it's, is that it's aggregate so demand? What, right. Sorry, yeah. Marcel, Karen. I mean, one form of cycle that does occur that is not uncommon is you have you and Adam, you kind of touched on this already. The um, conspicuous consumption is where is part of is, is related to this. Is so you develop the new things come out. The people that have the resources gravitate to those things because they're a symbol of status yeah. and recognition that help, you know, put them, you know, dom- that yeah. helps maintain their dominant level. Yeah. But then after a time, they lose that, the elite status aspect of it, and it becomes more affordable for everybody else. And then it gets more adopted. And that is a cycle that happens. And I don't know that. Well, here's an interesting question then, because... If we allow the evolutionary process to continue without acknowledging the consequences of the time that it takes for that to evolve. So let's just say I'm not I'm not a climate change expert. In fact, when I talk about climate change, I say changes in climate that have consequences. That's my escape clause. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. But that's so let's assume that changes of consequence, climate changes of consequence is occurring at a faster rate than the adoption of the evolutionary process that's necessary to protect us against the changes of, of consequence. Where do we, you know, where do we where get do we people go? to, yeah, where do, you know, how does, how do we, because ultimately what needs to happen is there has to be a greater power that can stand above all of this and look at the these timeline comparisons. How is the technology evolving and how is the climate change of consequence evolving? And if one of those is faster than the other, there's it's an if-then statement, isn't it? Well, so I think, we can look to our hunter-gatherer past. So, I mean, part of what we're looking for are social control mechanisms, right? To help us, you know, right. reach the pro-social goals that we want, the goals that are beneficial to society as a whole for the long-term aspects of it. And actually, we can look to our hunter-gatherer past, and that actually there are lessons there. 
in terms of how, because we spent for millennia, a large, large amount, most of our time was spent in these smaller groups. And we developed a lot of social control mechanisms to ensure a pro-social, you know, basically people not being too selfish, you know, benefiting themselves at the expense of the larger group. Mm, I love that. And uh, so we're going to come back to that. There is an economist, um, Eleanor Ostrom. Fortunately, she's no longer with us, but she won the Nobel Peace Prize for some of her work on this specifically. And she looked at how groups are able to avoid the tragedy of the commons problem, basically managing resources without depleting them over the long term. How, and how doing that without you know having a you know, some dominant hierarchy uh, per se over them. And then these tie back to actually to our hunter-gatherer past. There's these uh, okay, I'm going to just stop you right there because I'm jumping at the bed here to ask you a question. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> All right, so we've talked about exergy on this show before. And I think, Marcel, you have a rough idea of what I I'm talking about. have a rough about. idea, yeah. Yeah. So right now on LinkedIn, there's a, we have a, there's a discussion going on that I started on exergy. And, and so when you, when you use the word, people using resources for benefiting themselves at the expense of the group. That is exactly what's going on when we have people using natural gas for non-industrial purposes like heating homes. Because right. when we take a cubic meter of gas and we put it through into a house for the exclusive purpose of heating the space or domestic hot water, we're underutilizing the capabilities of that gas almost by 94, 95%. I mean, underutilization, right? Because that gas can be used for much more industrial purposes. So there's a case where social control needs to happen, but it's either through ignorance or other, I don't know what it, gas, I don't know what, there's a force in play that's preventing us from recognizing what we're doing to humanity when we allow gas to be used in this, in this way. Right. How do we correct that? Well, so I, I think it's through looking at ways to implement these social control mechanisms on multiple scales. And so I'd, you want me to briefly just go through what they are? Yeah. Yeah. There's, nice. there's, there's eight of them. That she, and she came up from studying different cultures um, who had their own resources that they were managing and found these eight common things that, people, that groups were able to, if they implemented them, they were, were able to avoid tragedy of commons problems for the most part. So one is, is establishing a strong group identity among the group that you're talking about. And that includes understanding and agreeing what the group's purpose, what their goals are. And then uh, the second one is having benefits proportional to the cost, right? So that the work or the benefits doesn't unfairly fall on some as opposed to others. Like you don't have right. people getting a bunch of good, great benefits as opposed to, to others in the group. Third one is consensus decision-making. And then, because, you know, most people don't like to be told what to do all the time. They want to at least have a, feel like they've had a say in, in making some of the decisions. Low-cost monitoring, right? So you have to have some ways to detecting when people aren't cooperating, when they're not, when they're, when they're stealing or when they're defecting or being selfish. You have to be able to detect that. And then you need to have some type of graduate level of graduated sanctions to correct those misbehaviors. Right. And they don't, and they shouldn't be like draconian. It should be matched to the level of. As proportional. Right. Exactly. And then you need to have some form of conflict resolution that everybody thinks is relatively fast and it's, it's perceived as fair among everybody. And then you want some degree of autonomy of the group so that it doesn't feel like it's being interfered by other groups. And that can, so that's a scale thing too. So you can think internally, if you have subgroups, they don't want to feel like they're being, you know, completely interfered with by some of the other sub- 
subgroups or the group against other groups. And then all these principles need to be scalable. And this, so this, you got to figure out the best way to make them scalable from you know, like a community to a state to a nation. And then thing that we're really trying to, that we're struggling with is globally, right? How do we do this? I, there's a, a biologist and anthropologist at the University of Binghamton, David Sloan Wilson, who this is his bread and butter, his expertise. And he developed, runs the Evolution Institute and does all this pro-social work. Actually, so he does a lot of research as well as applying it. And so he's actually trying to figure out ways to do this globally. And so he's a great person to follow along these regards. But and he actually, before Eleanor Ostrom passed, he worked with her in a couple of articles even. So really, I these principles now, you know, it's easy, right? easy said, harder, much harder to do, obviously. But yeah. you can get them done correctly and they're scalable. They work. The research shows that they work. And so what we're, what I'm trying to do is actually apply these at the small scale individual project level. Uh, That's really interesting because when you think about what's going on today with the current political discourse, right? What you just described, there are super national organizations like the UN, the IMF, who are trying to do this basically, (laughs) right? right? Mm -hmm. With treaties and laws, but the scale is possibly so goddamn massive right with seven billion people on the planet and mm-hmm. everyone at different stages of development there does become disproportional there are it's disproportional hard. effects right yeah it's going to take smarter person than me for sure to <laughs> figure that out that's yeah, a, that's a what, that's massive and, you've, and you have two forces well actually more forces than that one you have the, the free market philosophy and then you have the communistic philosophies and right there is a battle you know that applies to all of these principles that you just talked about. Because when we talk about the benefit of the group, you know, equality, all of that, there's hints of socialism in that, right? Right. Yep. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And so you're going to have, and so the, right there you have one camp, and then in the other camp you're going to have, you know, the the free market, you know, profit should rule. But at some point, mankind has to understand that in order of us to let let these both of these philosophies exist because i don't think we need to squash one or the other i think it's important we have both but at some point the benefit of humanity has to recognize that if we don't put social controls on this stuff we won't have an opportunity to express our own beliefs well, the, the problem <laughs> is both of them philosophies will tell you that they have the solution to the tragedy of the Colmans, right? The free <laughs> right. market guys will say, let it die and it will come back because it will get overdone and then someone will bring it back. And the socialists will tell you, well, we'll just manage it, come by R and everything will be good, right? So they both have the answer to the problem. And the reality yeah. is it's probably a lot grayer and messier, right? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 It, the great yeah. example of this is the oceans, right? A free good, essentially. But it's a commons, right? And there is a massive tragedy occurring there, Mm -hmm. right? It's the thing, water, Mm. people talk about energy and pollution, and they should, but people don't talk enough about the the coming crisis in fresh drinkable water and the abuse of the oceans is just at a scale that is mind-boggling. And I think we're getting to a tipping point there just to go down a a rabbit hole. And I'm a libertarian, guys. I'm not a socialist, right? But, you know, at some point you've got to say, how much plastic can you chuck in the ocean before things don't work? Oh, we getting there? We're getting there. Well, right? yeah. well, look at look at the and but look at the cruise line industry and the crap that they put into the into the ocean. I mean, every time a cruise line travels from Europe to North America, you know the sewage and the fuel, the pollution. You know, it's insane. Do people know, you know when they get on the cruise lines that every bit of trash they throw away just gets ejected into the water? They don't, right? 
If you, they did, they might not go on that cruise. I find yeah. it a bit offensive, yeah. quite frankly. It's, but in many ways, it's a representation of our society, you know, the cruise lines, aren't they? Yeah. People will pay, and, you know, it's a hedonistic system, mm. right, where they'll consume and consume and consume, and they'll consume food, they'll consume water, they'll, and then the byproduct, and the, of course, there's the fuel that gets consumed in the ship, and of course, and that gets distributed into the environment one way or another, right? Right. And nothing. Right. There's a disconnect between your actions and the consequences of those actions. Right. That's absolutely part of the problem. And part of what Ostrom's principles do is to figure out a way to make that connection, right? to connect. Actually, you know, I feel a lot better about one of my presentation statements. I always say the problem with climate change, it's it's the wrong name, but sustainability issues in general is that everybody's a nobody's problem. So I'm a, I live in a first world country called Canada. I get up in the morning, I'm warm water comes out of my faucet mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right so whilst i am concerned about it it doesn't impact me you're right right exactly. if i lived in india then things would be very different right or somewhere else right not to pick on india but i've just been there and it's not clean water doesn't come out of faucets necessarily in certain parts of india right so you know it is everybody's and nobody's problem but i think what's happening at the moment taking the ocean example it's starting to become everybody's problem right and that's why the Political tension is ratcheting up and it's becoming more of a headline news, you know, despite people's best efforts to ignore it. So, you know, at some point you're not pulling out enough cod, Newfoundland, right? So mm. Newfoundland, Canada, that, that industry is dead. Why? Because it's been overfished. Yeah. I mean, and, and this, you know, globally and why our military or other militaries are concerned about climate change is the potential conflicts that will arise, you know, yeah. as resources, you know, continue to get less and less and squandering. I mean, so at a global level, so, you know, the within group forces, that's, you know, that's, that's evolution at a global scale. So when within group forces at that point would be stronger than the between group or the overall. So yeah. globally, you know, we would, we'd be fractured. Right. And so, it, mm. so the, again, Ostrom's principles are about figuring out ways to minimize those within group forces, but doing it at a global scale is really difficult. That's why I work at the project scale. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's hard enough doing it on a project, right? The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. If you're enjoying this podcast, we need your help. We're not asking for money, just a minute of your time. Our goal is to make the Edifice Complex podcast as relevant, educational, and useful as possible. By having good ratings, we can reach the widest audience. Therefore, our request is two small things. If you haven't already, leave us a review and rating on iTunes. And subscribe to the Edifice Complex on YouTube, even if you normally only listen to the audio version. These two things will help us immensely. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. Thanks for your time. And now, back to the show. Till we had this discussion, I never really made the connection between social evolution and what goes on around us because it is everywhere, right? It permeates mm. everything. Social structures, hierarchies, politics that derive from that. It yeah. really impacts everything on every job you or, do. Yeah. It's crazy. I, it is, yeah. 
Again, this is why I'm a big fan of master's degrees that are not in your bachelor's degree subject because it expands that thinking, <laughs> yes. right? I, I, I like, yeah, cross-disciplinary yeah. stuff. Giving giving yeah. yourself exposure to that is totally, yeah. totally where it's at, I think. I mean, that's why I did what I did, the path that I did. It opened up a whole, it opens up other ways of looking at the world, right? Um, sure. And so innovation, you know, cross-disciplinary stuff breeds innovation, just yeah. like, you know, ev- cool things in evolution kind of happen at the boundaries of ecosystems. Yeah, the same type thing for cross disciplinary stuff. Boundaries of disciplines is where cool things can happen as well. So we had um, Bill Browning on uh, as a guest uh, who talked about biophilia and biomimicry, and you know that fits in really well in in many ways, Marcel, with your studies. Mm -hmm. You know the ecosystems that you're talking about and how those can natural ecosystems should be looked upon in the design process. He made a really interesting statement uh, and and get you to comment on that. And one of the statements he made was, is that what we ought to do is take a parcel of land in its natural state and study its carbon footprint, the resources, how the resources are maintained on that parcel of land. And that when that parcel of land gets let out for development, that the final project should not, should actually be, at or better than the parcel land in its natural state. So in other words, if that parcel land only uses X cubic meters of water in its natural state, that building, when it goes on top of it, should not disturb that natural balance. Oh, yeah. I mean, I would, I would agree with that. I mean, that, that should be your baseline, right? Where you start the goal of what your project should be. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and that was it. Is it start? That should be the, as you said, that should be the baseline. That's where you should start. Yeah. But you've triggered me there. I'm so triggered at the moment because one of the things <laughs> I'm having no, a social no. justice warrior moment here, right? So actually, I'm not. One of the things that triggered me the most in our industry is the use of the word "should." If I was king for a day, I would ban that word from English language. It is the most useless goddamn word in the world. Should has no compulsion. It's like it's not fair. Uh, it's a whiny word, right? Right, right, right. Sure. So we need to be more objective, right? Because when you keep it in the should zone, it's like being in the friend zone. You're close, but you're never getting there, right? <laughs> <laughs> so my my advocacy for any professionals who have the power to write specifications, delete the word should and put in will. Yeah. Oh, that yeah. change of yeah. word would change a lot of things. Stop well, a lot of lawsuits as well. <laughs> side, side sidebar discussion on the same yeah. lines of that. My the saying I hate the most is "think outside the box," yeah. because thinking is not an action word. You can think about it all you like all day long, but until you get out of the box and and do it, nothing will happen. Yeah. So should and thinking outside the box are, are the terrible. Yeah, they're cliches. Terrible. They're cliches. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. There's now, no Marcel, try. We do. Marcel, you. you <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you pu- exactly. <laughs> no try, dude. Marcel, yeah. you published a paper called Constructing Our Niches, or Niches if you're North American, the application of evolution theory to the architecture, engineering, and construction industry. Do you want to just give us uh, a bit of background? I'll, we'll provide this as a download link to your okay. site so people can get it because um, we like to provide resources for, for what we talk about. But can you just give us a bit of background on why you did that and what it's about? Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of really the reason that we did it was some of what we discussed now is basically, I think, evolutionary theory operating within that framework could improve some of the day-to-day you know, project 
individual project and and day-to-day aspects of, of the work that we do. And so the setup for that follows a lot of the discussion that we've had today in terms of the applicability of evolutionary theory to humans and human groups and contemporary societies. And then I, I go into a discussion of you know the difference between ultimate and proximate needs for people and groups. And that's the ultimate needs are things that are relatively common to the species. A lot of it relates to physiological aspects and psychological aspects or a few social cultural things as well. But, you know, things like comfort and those relate to some of the IEQ aspects. Biophilia, our connections to nature relates to that aspects of just having your environment and enabling you to do the tasks that you need to do aspects of control we like uh, to have control over our um, lives in various aspects including our physical environment and then cooperation and the ability to cooperate and the ability to compete as groups are kind of an ultimate need as well and, and nostrums I put Ostrom's principles as those core components of the cooperation all set of ultimate needs. And, and competition, really cooperation and competition are kind of two sides of the same coin in a way. Yes. And, you know, groups that are successful and are able to compete well with other groups typically can cooperate well internally. They have a good, strong ability to cooperate internally. They're functionally integrated. They are. They have a lot of uniformity in terms of how their processes and what they do, the goals that are agreement among everybody. So I kind of lay that out. And then actually meeting those needs within the built environment is inherent in understanding the, the right proximate solution. So those solutions, even though those, sim, those are similar needs that everybody may have, how they are manifested, the best, most successful way that meets those needs, and it's also uh, minimizes impact on the environment, will vary vary by location, vary by project type, vary by group, vary by, and, and so it's very, it can be very contextual. It's the proximate conditions to meet those needs. So I distinguish it between those and how anthropology and other disciplines can help determine those proximate needs and how the discussion that we have relative to Ostrom here, how looking at the design construction process from that standpoint can help improve the outcomes as well. And, and, and I discussed how the process could be structured within Ostrom's eight principles. That's kind of, that ends the okay. series of essays. So I'd, I'd recommend people download it. I, I mean, Ostrom's principles, again, never heard of it. 37 years in the business, never heard of this. And it's fascinating to me because there's a toolkit there. Now, the $64,000 question is, no phone a friend, how <laughs> easy is it to get clients on board with this line of thinking? So hard. Easy or hard. Easy or hard. <laughs> You know, so I've been at this for a while. And when I, so let's, I started with Branch Pattern 10 years ago, or no, it's been longer than that. It's 2007. And I was doing this even before that. So at that time, my focus wasn't, I didn't even talk about evolutionary theory to clients. I talked about ethnography and anthropology and sociology and getting and understanding occupants needs. And people started to get those, they started to get that. Even then for some people, it's a little, it was a little hard to understand right. really, is this benefiting me? I'm paying you this. Is it really giving me a benefit? Though as we did more and more projects, people saw the benefit. And and, and that was, so that's kind of where the start became. And then, and, and through that, being able to quantify impacts on productivity and health and show how that impacts their bottom line and show how looking at their needs specifically from an ethnographic standpoint helps improve the productivity and health of what they get. 
So that all helped. Okay, yeah, we start to get that. That makes sense. We get that. And and meanwhile, the, all the while, you know, I had Austrian's principles in the back of my head. I was I was thinking through this and other aspects of evolutionary theory. And and sometimes you talk about how needs, how human needs, physical, especially the physiological needs, how those are developed over our evolutionary history. People kind of get that, right? That 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 part they kind of get. They don't necessarily when when I start talking about using Austrian's principles. Or using evolu- cultural evolutionary theory to structure a design construction team that even now that's still kind of like mm, people can still kind of raise their eyebrow a little bit. But if I just talk about the principles, maybe and kind of leave out evolution, yeah, yeah and then I talk about what those principles are and how the teams can be structured that way and what the outcomes are, people get that. It's a process, right? People yeah. get processes and stuff. Like, okay, yeah, I kind of get that. So it, it kind of depends on, who, and so I, I gauge it on who I'm talking to, right? Whether yeah. I think they might, you know, what language I need to use. Yeah, wow. there's a fine so, line between being a cult leader and then being someone who's helpful to their bottom line, right? And it is a very fine line in our business, yeah. right? right. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, when you think about the words that you used, so ethnographic, graphy, evolutionary, anthropology, sociology, psychology, physiology, mm-hmm. all those G words <laughs> are not taught. In schools and in, in design curriculums, when you go to architectural, some, well, I shouldn't say that, some architectural programs will teach it, but right. mechanical engineering, certainly not taught to the trades, who are the number one interface to- with most with most customers, right? There's a disconnect, right? There's no yeah. ologies. We need There's someone no- to take an ology for masters. That's- <laughs> right. So when I'm talking to some of those individuals, it's less ology. I don't, I don't use ologies, but I just talk about people's needs, right? So we yeah. need to, people don't meet yeah. their needs. They're going to take certain actions. To meet those needs, and that yeah. those actions may have a negative impact on the company's operations or the building's performance, and maybe it'll piss off operations and maintenance, or you know, yeah. those yeah. things. Getting down to the nitty gritty, you know, when I start talking about specific examples, people get that right. Or you know, you have a bad daylighting design. I got lots of glare, and people don't use this primo space that you designed here that was supposed yeah. to be part of your flagship university's building here now nobody wants to none of the none of the professors want to use that space because you didn't you know spend the extra bit of money for good daylighting control and it's too much glare and heat in there nobody wants to be in that space during the summer so you know things like that it's just you know there are you know there's other reasons you i can get to you can get into some of the fun and reasons why under you know underlying reasons why but a lot of those it depends some people care about it some don't so it's interesting because no matter no matter how overbearing you might be as an owner, people will rebel, mostly subversively, right? Yeah. Quietly, oh, yeah. they're gonna sub. They're gonna suboptimize yeah. what you want, one way or the other, right? Yeah. Yeah. Teachers and staff baking cookies for maintenance guys so they can get you know yeah. sure that they have their temperature set the right way all the time versus yeah. you know. So it's yeah, all that stuff happens. Yeah, we. I don't remember what episode it was, but we did a calculation where we looked at cost per square foot for triple uh, a construction oh, let's take a number whatever 250 dollars a square foot and then we said well if i think it was 25 percent of the room was unusable because of discomfort like you said marcel lighting glare thermal comfort bad rating to symmetry because of the glazing yeah. uh, ratios that the cost per square foot for the usable space jumps up to like 320 dollars it was like a 40 47 percent increase on the cost of construction for the usable area. See, that is a silent tax. Yeah. Oh, yeah. absolutely, right? So, yeah. and, that w- and that calculation that we did was for one office in one floor 
in one building on one city block. And if you scale that up, you know, across a developed world, you think about the incredible amount of unusable space that we build into society, mm-hmm. which becomes kryptonite, really. It's a <laughs> cultural kryptonite, yep. you know, that is going to haunt us forever. And if the investment people understood that waste, we would be designing buildings a lot differently. Who in the right mind would spend that kind of money for space that you can't use? Right. I mean, that's and that's part of what we do. And I'm still trying to get our engineers and stuff to do it as as well is to point those out during the design process. And we can mm-hmm. quantify some of those impacts. We've got tools that we've developed to do that. And, you know, and most of our engineers now get to the point where, they, you know, if they can't do it themselves, they reach out to me and we, we get it done. But but yeah, I mean, that's, you know, getting that information, educating the client along those lines. I mean, that's part of what we need to be doing. Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head there, right? Because so a lot of things we're talking about here are subjective, not objective, right? But you've somehow got to get it down to objective numbers. Right. Right. Yeah, in our can, business, you have to. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's an estimate, but it's not, yeah. you know, hard and fast, but it but it can help move the needle, right? Yeah. And it can help them grasp yeah. things that they couldn't grasp before. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I agree. So look, we're coming up on the hour. We like to keep things to about an hour. So we have some quick fire questions we ask all our guests. Okay. No, again, no phone a friend, no lifelines. <laughs> And there are no incorrect answers here, okay? <laughs> so well, Maybe I'll have the first incorrect answer. No, no, trust me, you will not. So what we're after is we've, we've always got in mind, you know, the, the young graduates or young engineers and architects or young professional, built environment professionals starting their career. So what advice would you give them? So what would advice, this is one that's special to my heart because I have a daughter who's in STEM, um, what advice would you give to a young female graduate entering the built environment industry? Well, I, I'd give this advice probably to any graduate is, you know, be curious, <laughs> be curious about the world, have an open mind, look at, you know, look at what other, other disciplines, other, other people say, find some mentors that look at things from different perspectives, you know, you know, for a woman engineer, look for some women mentors, I think is probably really a, a good thing for them as well. You know, just get those experiences that get you out of the single track or the, the, you know, the one track that your degree had, and regardless of what that degree was, right? I mean, you don't have to, and you don't have to get a degree, uh, multiple degrees or whatever, but just, you know, expand your mind a little bit. Just look at, find ways to look at problems differently through different, and, and a good way to do that is look at what other perspectives, what other disciplines do, what other people that have experience doing things from a different perspective, how they approach problems, especially the when you're first coming out, getting that broader exposure, I think is, is beneficial. Mm. Uh, yeah. I think you've now that uh, my similar advice I give people is try and be multidisciplinary, right? Say you're an electrical engineer. All right. You're an electrical engineer, but you should under, should say, <laughs> I think I shoot myself now for saying that you need, you need, not should, you need to be multidisciplinary in your understanding at least, right? Of mechanical issues, architectural issues, structural mm-hmm. issues, right? You can't be a silo yeah. anymore. Yeah. So, yeah. Robert. So, on. Marcel, I mean, obviously in your practice, you work with architects uh, as part of your, you know, regular communication. Young architects or students of architecture, they're currently in school. If you had to give them some advice for their career path to make them better practitioners, what would you advise them? I would advise them to, you know, it's, it's kind of a similar, but I mean, work, you know, 
when you get out of school, be ready to work with other dis- with the other disciplines. I mean, you're it's not the other trades, the other this is the the architect isn't the soul of the project. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I know. That's I, heresy, I, sir. I dancing all across the <laughs> listen to this, but right, I mean, it's like they're. I'm not saying they're not a key part of the solution because they're typically the you know the, the yeah. main holder of the contract with the owner for multiple projects, but for many types of projects, but you are one, one part of the solution, right? There is to get to the ultimate goal, the ultimate goal of a finished project for your client. It takes a team uh, assembly an ensemble of crafts and trades and disciplines and to get it done and, and to be the best, you know, if you want to be the, the focus point of it, make sure that you're the best lead, you know, manager of that group, the best, you know, leader from that standpoint. So, you know, that's, a, I think, some advice that I would give them. Yeah, I think, you know, when you look at your client base, obviously the projects that you worked on, you're working with architects, and the outcome uh, of those projects really reflects the relationship that you have with architects. You know, the architects who are willing to work with the principles that you bring to the table obviously contributes to the, to the outcomes, and those outcomes and the projects that you work on are better than other outcomes. Yeah. And, and the other thing, so that you just said that, I thought of, the other thing that I would say is bring your consultants, everybody in sooner, bring them in sooner, bring it, bring people in it towards the beginning of the project, right? Make your engineers part of the, from the very beginning, mm, get the contractors involved. involved, get them involved early. My God, are you talking about the integrated design process? I, I am. <laughs> the unicorn that everyone can describe, but no one can show me. Integrated design, human-centered design is the same thing in terms of, you know, get them involved early. Yeah. Well, just in a second on that one, because it is a really good point. And I don't know if you're familiar with IDEO. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, IDEO, every, all design is human factor design. That's their ethos. Right. So then when they develop a product, you know, they bring in people from all aspects of life, yep. you know, and it doesn't matter whether it's a chair or the mouse or a photocopier, whatever. There's going to be an airline pilot in that room. There's going to be a baker in that room. There's going to be a school teacher yep. in that. It doesn't matter. They just bring in minds and experience to the design team. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think that's a brilliant process. And that really is what we're talking about here, right? Bringing in all these people. And in many ways, that's that's your study, isn't it? Yeah, and, and when we developed our own human-centered design process, we took a course from IDEO first to help us kind of figure out what we wanted to do. So, I mean, you're, yeah, they have a really great, great process, and there was some great insight that we had to help us take some of the, what they do and apply it specifically to, to our, our work. Oh, fantastic, yeah. yeah. And just one one insight I've had since we've done this podcast is we, I mean, I'm a big technology nerd. I was going to ask you about the Internet of Things, but I'm not going to now because what I've realized is on this podcast, we have spoken about principles, right? Design principles, evolution, sociology, all theologies we can ever think of, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and it hasn't involved technology. So my takeaway from that is you, know, you can advance things massively, without the aid of technology, right? Because everyone just is the go-to. Oh, more flashing lights and things that go beep and the Internet of Things. If I hear someone tell me the Internet of Things is going to change things again, I'm going to scream and my head's going to explode. Well, Um, technology is part of the effect, right? (laughs) How effective it is. You know know what it is? It's a a bolt on prophylactic to make people feel good at the moment. (laughs) 
Heard it first here live yeah. on the Oedipus Complex. <laughs> but now I, I, I'm a big fan of IoT and blockchain, and I think there's a place for it. But man, we got to get so get our house in order. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. We've got to get our house, our design and construction house in order before we start bolting this technology on. Yeah, good point, Adam. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the takeaway for me is, you know, one, if you're doing a master's, do it in an adjacent field. And anthropology, yeah, I think you win that game. You win. You <laughs> right. win, myself. <laughs> you win at the most right. possibly yeah. adjacent subject that you can use ever. And two, you know, technology isn't always the answer. The answer is better thinking. Right. Understanding yeah. uh, humanity, really, the, uh, cultural our evolution, just exactly what we've been talking about. Uh, we we can learn in the same room. We should all hug right now. <laughs> 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 oh, but that would be politically incorrect. We can't do that. Yes, now. we're not allowed to do that. We do that virtually. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and we would be touching. Virtual fist bump. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, so look. Uh, Marcel, thank you very, very much for coming on. It's been yeah. mind expanding oh. for me, literally. I've I never knew there were so many ologies out there. Quite frankly, <laughs> <laughs> thanks for having me on. I, re- I really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, uh, it's, it's been great having you on. And and you know, for our listeners, this is probably one of the podcasts that you can use to guide your career. You know, or the students, yes. right? There's a lot of lessons in this in this interview. Marcel, we put all your um, sort of social media coordinates on the episode notes do you want to let people know what your twitter handle is twitter is uh, marcel Harmon one right yeah. i like that number one <laughs> <Yeah>. early <laughs> early adopter See? Yeah. I like <laughs> yeah it wasn't fast enough marcel Harmon was taken so <laughs> okay and uh, we'll put all marcel's uh contact information in the show notes for everybody we'll put a download link to his website where you can get his paper and yeah my advice for everyone is Look further into Marcel. There are some things going on there. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, man. Thank you very much, Marcel. Yeah. Been, it's right, been yes. a pleasure to have you on. All right. Talk to you later. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Bye-bye. So what did you think of that? I thought Marcel was excellent. <laughs> uh, you know, we're so lucky to have some of the best minds coming on this show. I uh, couldn't agree more. You know, his brain, like the other brains that we've had a chance to tap into, you know, just add to the the, the dimension of our of you, you know your knowledge base, yeah. my knowledge base, and then ultimately the listeners' knowledge base, right? What he brought to the to our discussion, our ongoing continuum here, is an element that most people it doesn't even hit their radar screen, and it should. No, I mean I've been working nearly thirty eight years now, and the thoughts I've had with Marcel and with Bill Browning have never entered my head before. Right. Yeah, and that's pretty trashy, actually. <laughs> yeah, like I, I'm with you. Like, I mean, where the heck were these? Well, I mean, the the studies have always been there. Really, it just took people like Bill and Marcel to put it together, right? And yeah. then make and then make it public. You know, and had we not, and and you know, granted that we talked a little bit about the internet thing, but the internet has done one thing, and it's brought awareness of these individuals certainly to our radar screen yeah i don't think yeah you couldn't have their message get out there and their knowledge get out there without the internet so the internet is an amazing tool for liberating ideas and knowledge and making accessible right the world without the internet would be dumber although you could say it's made people dumber as well right but you know certainly from a professional point of view and a working point of view having the access to the information 
out there. It's on you right now. There's no reason why you can't get what you need. It's on you to get it. Absolutely. That's a great point, Adam. Yeah. And all of these individuals, everybody we've had on, if there's ever a lesson, and you just said it, it's up to you to learn this stuff. The information is there. There's no excuse for not having access to the information. It's up to you to learn this stuff. Yeah. What guys like Marcel do is they make you, and I say you, the, the listeners, aware of the fields of study that you should be considering as you develop your career. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that evolutionary thing, well, one, we spoke about the Romans, my favorite. I love the Romans. Engineers with spears, man. Yeah. They, were, they were such gangsters. Only be, but also because they were hedonistic and you're a hedonist yeah, too. Yeah. It's true. So. Absolutely. <laughs> they, they're my type of people, man. <laughs> but they, they, they built structures that last thousands of years you know, their engineering skills are still, and the principles that they developed are still being used. That's what part of my shtick when I do a presentation about radiant heating and cooling is, you know, I start off with the Monty Python thing, what the Romans ever done for us? Well, yeah. radiant heating, radiant cooling, let's put that out there. Plumbing, yeah. let's put yeah. out that out there. Structures that last for 2,000 years, let's put that out there, right? Yeah. None of them things we do very well today. Yeah. You know, what's interesting, that just a sidebar again, part of it is in the beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. So here's a, here's the comparison. My dad, God bless him, he's uh, 84, 85 years old, went to Italy, saw the Roman ruins, and I, and I just came back there. So we had a discussion about the Roman ruins, and he's an accountant. Right. right? That's, that's his career, he's an accountant. Yeah, I went to Italy, I saw, I saw the rubble. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Right. I go to Italy and I said, I saw the magnificent engineering and architectural. Yeah. And we had a discussion about how our eyes, how our own filters see the world. Yeah. Yeah. Because, and it was a great discussion to have with my dad because, you know, he I got to see where his perspective was and, and he got to see what my perspective was. And it's just through our filters. Right. Yeah. So that's the thing, right? You're designing for people and you got to accommodate both them ends of the spectrum, right? Yeah. yeah. See, I go, I'm like you, I go to an old place and I, I go into full nerd mode. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love yeah. that. So, I, so I, actually, I haven't been to Rome and seen the Colosseum. That's on my bucket list. That is an amazing structure, right? Yeah. I, You know, I'm when I travel, I, I'm a freestyle traveler, which right. means I don't have an agenda. Whatever shows up in front of me shows up in front of me and I en- and I enjoy it for what it is. Yeah. So I'm standing there with a friend of mine and we're in uh, in Italy and we're standing at this magnificent building. Neither of us know knew what we were standing in front of. So we're in Rome. So we get out our GPS and we say, Siri, where are we? And the answer was, you're standing in front of the Pantheon. <laughs> oh, dude, I'm so upset you didn't know what that was. <laughs> Right, but that's what freestyle travel is all about. You you explore, and then what shows up in front of you becomes a, a matter of curiosity. You know, what this is what is this building, and why are all these people here? Right, and I love that. And so we that whole trip, we came across buildings that we had no idea what we were looking at until we started asking questions. And I think that's what Marcel excels at is asking those questions that people normally don't ask. And because he asks those questions, he gets really interesting answers. To yeah, solutions. he's quite, uh, he flies under the radar, I can imagine, with his clients. He gets the, he gets what he wants and they don't realize they're sort of participating. Yeah. Because you know, he, he's, he's 
obviously found a way to put it in language that they can deal yeah. with. So if you go in there and start talking ologies to a property developer, and I've been one, you know, if you're not talking money within five minutes on how it's going to save you money, you may as well just kill yourself. It's not going anywhere. <laughs> you know, <sorry. laughs> yeah. Yeah. The ologies, you know, but yeah, yeah. I mean, with a guy like Marcel, I mean, I mean, unless you knew his knowledge, I mean, I'm watching people, maybe they don't know here on the podcast, but we we do a visual and an auditory recording here, but the visual that we never show, but we, we have the visual so we can actually see facial expressions and that type of stuff. And when you're looking at Marcel and he's talking, boy, you can just see the gears turning. Like it's like his mind is just like the gears are turning and all that stuff, the recall that he has, and then also the ability to forecast or, or look at the visions, you know, trying to imagine what, how he can use that information. It was remarkable. I love talking with him. Yeah, no, he's, a, he's a very intelligent guy. But can you imagine the conversation at home where he's done his bachelor's degree in engineering and he comes home one day and says, guess what, mum, I'm doing, a, I'm doing an anthropology degree. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the word why would just fall out yeah. of my mouth immediately if I was his parents. Yeah. <laughs> no, but turned out to turned be out great. To be right? Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, again, I love that. This is what we I was referring to when we were starting the podcast, the adjacent yeah, possible, absolutely. right? A lot of people are in their cubicles or in their little silo just doing their thing, doing block load calculations yeah. and that. And sometimes you've got to get your head yeah. out, right, and look at the adjacent, and that's what he has done really, really well. Him and Bill Browning are great examples of people who have applied adjacent thinking to get a better outcome. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And what it does do, I so, mean, again, for those that get stuck within the status quo, you maybe don't even know you're in the status quo, you know? You're too busy working to know. And then you have people who jump on the, the buzzword, and you brought it up, the Internet of Things, right? They they hear the Internet of Things. They see it as an opportunity. They jump on the bandwagon, and for, and then all of a sudden they forget, you know, everything else that's around them, right? And the reality is, is that the building blocks – that are necessary for continuation, for the evolution, have nothing to yeah. do with the things that they're focusing on. They're just, yeah. The internet of things, we've got, to do, we've got to find someone to come on and speak about that because my view on that is, you know, there's, just take cars, for example. They're very well-evolved, super integrated design pieces of yeah, yeah. machinery, right? So you stick multiple sensors on that, you get meaningful answers yeah. back, right? but we can't even build buildings with straight non-leaf yeah. ductwork. Yeah. So sticking an internet sensor on it doesn't do you anything yeah. good, right? Well, we – So, yeah, you know, when, when we can do straight pipework and ductwork, yeah. call me. <laughs> then we'll talk about the internet of things, right? Yeah. Well, we had uh, uh, Mario on who talked a little bit about the internet of things and our uh, colleague from uh, Control Energy Corp. Yes, Paul Gezi. Uh, he's, he's actually on the front line there with internet of things, but more – with blockchain as a way of monitoring emissions and energy use as a way of like an undisputed record. And I think that's yeah. a big future. But both, but both of those so, guys yeah. saw the technology as an add-on to the building or the, or the, the uh, infrastructures, the systems. As, as, you know, it, didn't, it wasn't the lead in it. It was the add-on. What can we do with that? for data acquisition and how can we use that to improve environments, yeah. energy, blah, blah, blah. But some of these people on the internet, I think it's like, it's the Holy grail. It's going to save the world. People speak about it like it's magic pixie dust. You've got to sprinkle over the drawings and everything's yeah. going to be wonderful. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's not Tink. It's not that you know so, Tinkerbell is is you might like to believe in Tinkerbell and Peter Pan and the whole world, but that's not, that's not reality. Yeah, you're no, right. No, you, I mean, as a commissioning specialist, I mean the shit that you see on jobs. I said, you oh, know. Right. So my buzzword when people tell me, so tell me what commission is. I just give them three words: trust but verify. <laughs> I trust you to design it and put it in, but I will verify the performance yeah. of the system. And I can count on one hand in 38 years how many systems have performed yeah. spot on. So, you know, maybe, maybe it goes this way. The blockchain record keeping and the if the cost of sensing airflow, water, and every other metric you can think of drops so low and it becomes like 10, 20 cents mm. a sensor to put it on a system, then it becomes so pervasive and everywhere that event of blockchain record keeping and multiple like multiple multiple sensors everywhere would maybe shame that and the, the results that would come out of that would shame people into Got doing it, things yeah. properly right? good point because at the moment shitty design and construction gets rewarded with an occupancy ticket and off you go with your money yeah. right now if owners actually got real-time information in dollars and cents on how good or bad that building worked there would be what I would call the uh, the white cat in the leather chair meeting where you come in and we have the errors and omissions meeting. <laughs> I've had a few of them as a developer. They're yeah. awesome. But, you know, at the moment, the industry is geared up to reward corner cutting and bad work. Now, I have said that before, if you're a design engineer or constructor out there getting triggered right now, yes, you do not get paid enough money. That is for sure. I actually put the blame on owners for this completely. They don't ask for what they want properly. They don't enforce the standards properly. And then they get upset when it doesn't get yeah. done properly. It's almost the definition of insanity, right? Absolutely it is. Yeah, yeah. so I know there's work for us to do. So <laughs> there's plenty of absurdity for us to poke fun at, yeah. I think. But, and, and we talked about this before, and that is outcome-based designs. And then if we go back to our guest, Marcel, here, yeah, the projects that they work on become examples of how things should be done. Yes, it sits out there in the world once it's out there, right? Right. And if we look at a lot of our guests that we've had in the past and guests that we're interviewing now and those in the future, there will be a common thread. Yeah. And that, that outcome-based designs through integrated design processes are going to create buildings that become the example of how we should be doing things. And that's really what one of the ethos of our podcast is all about. Exactly. Someone yeah. asked me last month, you know, so I had a bad meeting where I gave them this punch list was about 2,000 items long. I said, you know, what do you want? And I said, look, the only thing I respect is excellence. Yeah. I respect excellence in all its forms. Excellence in the form of something just being done correctly is awesome for me, right? Yeah. The fact that I don't come across it very often in my business drives me crazy. So, sure. you know, Marcel represents a form of excellence. He represents yeah. forward thinking and excellence in his thinking, which hopefully translates into excellence in his projects and the outcomes he gives his clients, right? Excellence yeah, is a very underrated phenomenon. Yeah. Well, and you said it earlier on, you know, in terms of creating mentorship for new grads or, or people even that are in school, if you're, yeah. you know, you need mentors in your career yeah. and your choice of mentors will ultimately contribute to how you, where you end up. 
Yes. You choose bad mentors, you're going to end up in a place you may not want, <laughs> may not want. But if you choose good mentors at the beginning, then you may end up in a place that you want to be and then enjoy being and you'll love your career and you'll love the work you do. Yeah, so actually a good point to wrap this up on is uh, I'm going to quote James Altucher, one of my favorite podcasts. He says, you are the sum of the five people you hang out with. Mm, I are love you, that. Are you an easy hang or a hard hang? But yeah. you are the sum of the five people you hang out with, right? Environment a, matters, as it turns out. <laughs> yeah, I love that. <laughs> to get it back to analogy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, and there's. I agree with that. There was somebody that said, "You become what you read, what you yeah. see, what you hear, and what you do." Yep. And that that is influenced by the five people that uh, you hang around with. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's it, man. That's your life. And the people you hang around with set your aspirations, right? Yeah. So, you know, on that deep, deep thought. <laughs> <laughs> Keep your kids from stealing hubcaps at yeah, night. Get the, yeah. get the, get, did you hear about in Ottawa, before we go off here, that the, the, the neighbor complained about the a hockey rink? No, that's very un-Canadian. How did that happen? Totally, right? So, <laughs> so, why, so, so again, this, is, this goes back to our conversation, right? So some person, some neighbor made a complaint about the neighbor's hockey rink. So your kids... You know, I mean, if you can see them out in the cold, having fun, you know, socializing with the neighborhood. And not stealing cars. And not stealing cars. <laughs> yeah. You tell me, you know, what, what we should be doing, right? So, you know, hanging around with five people huh? as a kid, playing hockey on a rink versus uh, hanging around with a bunch of thugs where, do you, where would you want your kids? So, you know, this person in Ottawa that made the complaint, like, come on, give that's your a, head a that's shake. That's got to be a grumpy old person, right? Oh, grumpy old person, absolutely, yeah. yeah. yeah I plan to now, be a crazy old person, no grumpy. <laughs> yeah. Now, there were some extenuating circumstances. The yeah. complaint had to do with ugliness. It was an aesthetic complaint. Somebody said, well, no, the, the hockey rink was on city property, so it was a municipal issue. The issue wasn't a municipal complaint. It was a complaint about how ugly the boards were on the hockey rink, and they wanted them to take it down. That's probably a rich, grumpy person, right? <laughs> or an unhappy person, unhappy seeing other people happy, right? Either way, yeah, that's not a good person. There, there you go. So, yeah, be careful who you hang around with and yeah. the neighbors that you uh, that you surround yourself with because they could make your life miserable too, right? So as a new Canadian, I am shocked there's no laws against complaining about <laughs> <laughs> There will be now. That, cause that, because what happens now is with the social, with the internet, that neighbor now is popular in yeah. a, not a very good way. Yeah, he's going to get. <laughs> oh, yeah. But his, his, his or her upcomings is, is going to come. Yeah, the Twitter mob but, are coming. With, oh, absolutely. With their pitchforks. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, all right, Adam. It's okay, always man. a pleasure, man. See you on the next one. Take care. <laughs> all right, see you. See bye. Ya. Bye. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time. Adam, it's time to thank some people who are on our side because we're on their side. You found a new tool, software, Blue Rhythm commissioning software. Robert, I sure have. I think Blue Rhythm is what I've been looking for all these years. 
Building commissioning can be chaos at the best of times. Most projects I consult on really suffer from poor information management. You know, it's 2019, yet the property and construction industry seems to be firmly stuck in the 20th century paperwork world. I think people mistake emails and PDFs and Microsoft files on their servers and all the different PCs as a digital solution. In reality, it's just unorganized chaos. Do you want to streamline your commissioning process and save time and money? Do you want to go paperless and increase efficiency? Blue Rhythm is a cloud-based software solution built specifically for building commissioning professionals. Blue Rhythm digitizes your custom forms and checklists, allows collaboration across project teams, and automates reporting, leaving you to focus on what matters. Their team help you onboard the test sheets you've developed over the years. You can even send it some in paper, and they will digitize that and put it in the Blue Rhythm system for you. In my opinion, Blue Rhythm pays for itself in time saved on paperwork on a single project. For a demo or to start a free trial, go to bluerhythm.com. That's where rhythm is spelled R-I-T-H-M, like algorithm. Bluerhythm.com. Tell them the edifice complex sent you there.